Good morning. You survived Satan's trick of moving the clocks ahead an hour? This is, without question, the worst day of church during the calendar year, every time. Um, we, we didn't have anybody that I know of walk in at 10.15 thinking it was the 9.15. I was hoping we would because we all had a plan for a service. We'd turn around and clap and welcome them, but that didn't happen, so I'm disappointed just a little. Um, this morning, uh, just, well, let me go this way. So what we just finished up was a study in the book of Ruth. And that really was kind of out of our desire to walk through some of the, the stories of the faithful women that are in God's word. There's so many faithful women in God's word, and we wanted to focus particularly on that for a season. And so we started with the book of Ruth. My intent, plan, schedule, all of my, my, my preparation for this coming Sunday leading up to last week, uh, we were going to look at Romans chapter 16, the first couple of verses, and focus in on a woman named Phoebe. And we're still going to talk about her. But as I studied that in the last week and a half, two weeks, and, and kind of dug into it, I, I was reading the immediate context of Romans 16, and I could not ignore the rest of the chapter. So we're going to do the whole chapter, Romans 16. We're going to talk about some people who have some very strange names. We're going to see how that goes. But before we can get there, you kind of have to understand contextually how we got the book of Romans. Okay? It wasn't like Paul sent a letter to the church at Rome that was all bound in book form, and everybody got a copy of it distributed to them when it first arrived. That what actually happened was Paul wrote a letter to this church, and when he wrote a letter to the church, word would spread among the church, hey, Paul wrote us a letter, we're getting together Friday at 7, Friday at 7, we're getting together, grab your popcorn, get your milk duds, get your Pepsi, your coffee, whatever you need, we're all going to gather here, and one person is going to stand up in front of the entire church family and is going to read this beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul has written for us here at Rome in this time. Now, if you've spent any time studying the Bible and worked through the book of Romans, you know this thing is a theological monstrosity. So imagine being the original recipients. You and all your buddies, you got your milk duds, you're sitting down, everybody's okay, we're ready. And, and they begin, the person gets up with, with, with Romans and, and opens it up and maybe does a couple greetings, they probably open in prayer, maybe sing a couple songs, and he starts by saying, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand to the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, just right there. And everybody's like, oh, this is really happening. Paul has really written us a letter. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes, their seats. I'm not exactly sure how to say that. I want you to put yourself there under the reading of this letter the first time. In those first few chapters, as the person's reading this letter from Paul, what, what Paul is explaining to us is we are a mess. And if we're going to get saved, only God could possibly do that for us. Because religion, family, ethnicity, none of those things, no relationships that we have, no experience we've ever had can possibly remove the stain of our sin and, and, and repair the damage that sin has done in our hearts. And so we, as we listen to the words of Paul being read to us, we agree when we hear him say in chapter 3, there is none righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's, there's no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there because he says there's good news. The good news is that, that when God looked at us and saw the, the, the damage that sin had inflicted upon us, saw our complete and total inability to do anything but sin, God came and gave us something. He, he didn't give us something else to try to do. He gave us his son who's done everything. And, and, and Paul unpacks this in his letter. Right? He says, Jesus Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his, his willing, humble death on the cross where you should have died, because of that, you can have peace with God. You can have forgiveness of sins, not by doing more or by avoiding certain things, but instead by believing on him who justifies the ungodly. And when you're sitting there and you hear that word spoken to you from the pen of Paul, you can be justified I mean, you get goosebumps because you fully understand what that word justified means. What Paul is saying is in Jesus Christ, you're justified. You are treated just as if you had never sinned. But even better than that, more complete than that, not only that, but you are also being treated just as if you had always obeyed. I mean, this is, this is what good news is. And when you get to chapter five in our, in our letters, for the Church of Romans, what you find is that, that those people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been declared righteous, and they've been given victory over sin, because even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, hold on, stop right there, right? You don't need to write, read the rest of the letter, do you? That, that's exactly, so if you're here this morning, you're like, I have no idea why I'm in church. That's why you're in church this morning. Because you're coming in, and whether or not you will admit it publicly or loudly, your life has demonstrated it every day, that your life is a mess, and you are so broken in your sin, and there's nothing you can do about your sin yourself, but God loved you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Not so that you could go to church more, not so that you could wear a certain clothing, not so that you could carry around a certain Bible, not so that you can obey in certain ways and make him happy. Maybe I can make him happy today, and you wince every time you come into his presence. Now, Jesus Christ died in your place so that you can go into his presence fully confident that you're at peace and justified through the work of Christ. I, I, I love this. Then Paul continues writing to us, right? In our Bibles, it's chapter 7. But in the letter, he says, listen, I've got to be honest with you. There's this battle that rages in my soul, this battle with, with, with the flesh and, and, and with sin and, and, and I had this trouble, Paul says. My mind knows what I'm supposed to do, but my flesh just can't do it. What am I supposed to do? This is, this is coming from Paul. He's being vulnerable. He's being honest. He's being open. He's being humble. I've got this struggle, this, struggle, this tension in my heart. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but then he continues and says, but I can tell you this right now. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we celebrate when he says what we know to be the beginning of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The confidence that we have in our salvation is the confidence we carry in life. If God is for us, who is against us? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if there's an intermission when they read the letters. I'm guessing at this point, I'm going to need more milk duds. <laughs> and you come back and sit down, and Paul says, all right, you're okay. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> and he presents Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is, 
He says, listen, there's a God. He is eager to save you. He is a God who works mysteriously. He is a God who works mercifully. And when you understand what it is that you don't actually understand, right? When you understand how deep and rich and amazing this is, your only proper response is to sing the ancient hymn that all the old churches used to sing. And so I can imagine the, the reader of the article or the letter gets to that place and says, he writes the hymn, hey, hey, Jeremy, band, come on. Let's sing this together. And they begin to sing at the top of their voices after they have just come into full contact of the mercy and mystery of the grace that God wants to dump out in your life. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. No, oh, and you, you finish singing that, and you might sing it in around a couple times, upside down a few times, you sing it backwards, forwards, and then it's done, and you're covered in goosebumps, and you're wiping the tears from your eyes. And then you get in our Bible, Romans 12, where everything hinges, everything switches. He says, okay, now, what I need to explain to you, Paul says, is if you believe the gospel, you are going to begin to look like the gospel. So, so, so those who have been greatly loved are going to become people of great love. Those people who have been greatly mercied are going to become people of great mercy. Those people who have been shown incredible grace are going to be those who show grace to other people. Those people who have been redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ are going to seek to, to demonstrate that redemption in the lives of other people. And you hear him say that, and you're like, this, this is hard. How am I supposed to do that? If you, you look around, we live in Rome. This place is jacked up. It's so, how am I supposed to do this? And Paul's like, just like he's anticipating your very question. He says, dude, listen, your hope is not in your temporal circumstances. It is in your eternal kingdom. So live with this motto. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live, whether we die, we belong to the Lord. And it seems like he's coming to the, the climax of, of his letter, Romans 15. He says, I need every single one of you to know you have a role to play in God's kingdom. So are you doing it? Whew. Milk duds are long gone by this point. That's been a good day in church right there. The Apostle Paul just completely unpacked this, this theological treatise for us. And then at the end of it, through that zinger, they're like, and what about you? Oh, Paul, that was amazing. But he's not done. Chapter 16 of the book of Romans is probably the least popular chapter of one of the most popular books in Scripture. Romans 16 celebrates the beauty of of the body of Christ. It celebrates their devotion to God, their devotion to each other. As Paul closes his book out by sending his greetings to his friends. Now, again, remember, you're sitting with all your family, your church family, and you're sitting there, you're like, okay, Paul's gonna read to us. Okay, cool, Whew, it's been long, but man, I gotta get home, because dinner's in the oven, so we gotta get moving. Come on, let's move this along. And Paul starts, and, and what he starts doing, he's like, so I want to just make sure I greet, and he starts naming names. So put yourself there. <laughs> I'm sitting with all of you like, this is amazing. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Um, who, uh, B B I can't say Billy Graham. He's dead. But Billy Graham wrote a letter. That'd be really awkward because he's dead. But that's okay. Billy Graham wrote a letter. 
And he's ending the letter. He's like, I'm going to send some greetings to my friends there at Uniontown. And you're like, oh, this is good. And you're looking around at each other like, yeah, all right. Like, he doesn't have anything. I'm like, then send my greetings to Frank. You know why I want to send my greetings to Frank? I want to send my greetings to Frank because he, it's everything after the because. You're like, oh, no. Right? Is he going to mention my speeding ticket? Is he going to mention that really obnoxious period of time I had in my high school? I mean, what, what exactly is he going to unpack on me? Well, there's nothing embarrassing, I promise. The Apostle Paul does is sends just immeasurable love and goodwill to his friends in Rome. Um, so I'm going to attempt to read Romans 16 portion by portion and explain it. I promise you that the key to doing this is read fast and confident and nobody will know you messed it up. Here we go. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sancrea. So you, would, you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. We're going to stop there. So who is Phoebe? Phoebe doesn't live in Rome. She lives in Sancrea, it says. That's a town near Corinth. Corinth is where Paul is as he's writing this letter to the church at, at Rome. Uh, Phoebe is actually probably the person who carries the letter to Rome for Paul. So he writes it, and, and this is three ways that you would deliver mail or deliver letters back in the day. One, if you were an official in the government, you had courier service that you would just give them as their job. Uh, number two, if you were wealthy, you would give it to one of your servants. And number three, if you were a normal person, you would just find somebody who happened to be traveling that way, and you would hand them the letter to deliver. Paul hands the letter to Phoebe. The letter is the book of Romans. We owe Phoebe a debt of gratitude because if she had misplaced Romans, we would never have it. How many of you misplaced things when you were traveling? Uh, just this morning, a number of you got to see this. I misplaced my Bible. It's a little awkward for the pastor guy. So I went from room to room to room. I'm going to find my Bible. It was exactly where it was supposed to be. Go figure. But that's not the point. I lose things that aren't even lost. Phoebe made sure that she kept this under control. But she wasn't just a delivery person. Paul says she is our sister. She's our family member. We have the same father. We have the same inheritance. We're getting the same reward. This is our sister. And when it comes to families, particularly church family, our families care for their own. So he says to them, I want you to be there for her. I want you to assist her. Do anything that she needs and charge it to my account, Paul says. She's not just a sister or a delivery person. She's also a servant, it says. In the English, the word is used. She is a servant of the church of St. Crea. The Greek word servant is diakonos. Diakonos is where we get our word deacon. For a number of reasons, I believe that this is actually describing the office of deacon. And so I would say this here, and I'm not going to talk about it long. It'll be more next week than this week. We believe that there's no reason why women cannot be deacons. We do believe that men are to be elders, men who, who lead the governance of the church and are primarily the Sunday preachers, the preachers within the collected, gathered body of Christ. But again, we'll talk about that next week. So you can't leave mad this week, you leave mad next week, okay? So next. <laughs> just kidding. She's not just a servant, she's a benefactor. A benefactor means she was probably a woman of means. She had wealth. We're not sure how she got her wealth, but she got her wealth uh, she used her wealth in a way to, to provide for her travel as an independent woman from Sancria all the way to Rome. This does not mean that she just happened to be Mrs. Moneybags in the church who whenever you had a need, you went and she wrote you a check. Okay? Benefactor means far more than that. 
Benefactor is a, a female guardian, protector, one who cares for the affairs of others and helps them with their resources. That's what Phoebe was doing. So let me ask you a question before I go any further. Within our church family, who would you identify as a Phoebe? There's many. Who would you identify as a Phoebe? Maybe you're supposed to be a Phoebe. What's stopping you from stepping up like that? Okay, let's keep going. Um, I'm, this is going to be tricky to get through all this, but we'll see what happens. So it's 16, verse 3. Give my re- greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So here, so here he says, greet, greet these two. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Now, other places it's called Priscilla and Aquila. So is it Priscilla or is it Prisca? I don't know. Ask Bob. Is it Bob or is it Robert? The answer is yes. Same thing here. Just a shortened version of her name. So Priscilla and Aquila are this couple. They're a married husband and wife. We meet them for the first time in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, what happens? Luke tells us they were Jews who were living in Rome and that the emperor pitched a fit and kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so most of them, because Corinth was very close to Rome, most of those Jews ended up in Corinth. In fact, Priscilla and Aquila ended up <clears throat> there in, in, in Rome. When they were there in Rome, sorry, when they were there in Corinth, there we go, they met this guy, um, this strange young Jew named Paul. And when they got to talk to him, they found out that he's a tent maker as well. They're tent makers. That's their trade. They started a business, Tiny Tim's Tent Making and Trade. It was pretty amazing. And so as Priscilla and Aquila were making tents, and just so you know, not canvas tents, those wouldn't hold up in the, in the wilderness. And also, there was, canvas was way too expensive. It was leather. They would work with leather. And they would make the leather tents. And Paul jumped in, and he, he came and was a seasonal employee with them. And then he ended up moving in with them. And after a period of time, Paul led Priscilla and Aquila to Christ. Now, Paul stays in Corinth for two years and decides it's time to go to Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila are like, cool, we're, we're pretty mobile, we're coming with you. So as a couple, they travel with the missionary Paul to Ephesus. And now as we read Romans 16, we find out that they have made their way back to Rome and now they're hosting a church in their home. Priscilla and Aquila. This, this, this couple is amazing. They're, they're a dynamic disciple-making couple. Let me, let me share this with you. So, so there's this fellow named Apollos. Acts 18.26 introduces us to him. and says this man named Apollos comes on the scene, he gets in the synagogue, and he begins to preach, and he preaches fire. Okay? He is letting it rip. He is speaking boldly upon boldly. And Priscilla and Aquila are sitting there, and they listen to him, and they're like, ah, oh, he's so close. He just doesn't get it all yet, because what he was preaching was the way of John the Baptist, which really would be him standing up in front of everybody saying, there is one who is coming, there is one who is going to do mighty things, and Priscilla and Aquila like, he hasn't heard about Jesus. And so when he's done, they take him aside, and they spend time explaining to him the way of God more accurately, it says. And after they spent time with him, it says Apollos became a huge resource to the movement of the early church. Apollos became one of the top three preachers in the early church. It's listed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul says, listen, there are some of you that are like, well, I like Peter's preaching. No, I like Paul's preaching. I'd rather Apollos. Because of the ministry and discipleship of Priscilla and Aquila, 
Apollos was instructed more accurately in the way and was able to become a huge resource to the early church. I love what it says here. It says they risked their own necks for Paul. We have no idea what happened here. We think it had something to do with the riot that happened in Acts chapter 19, but the, the, the inference is real. They, they were willing to, to risk in order to take care of Paul. I mean, you get the sense of that, 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 that Paul is saying, listen, the only reason I'm alive is because of what Priscilla and Aquila did. Not only that, but you also notice that they are an incredible team. Husband and wife, team. Okay, their names are mentioned six times in the New Testament. Four of those times, Priscilla's name is listed first. That's not nothing, okay? That's, that's significant. We're really, what the inference from that we get is this. It wasn't like Aquila was out doing the manly man work and uh, Priscilla was back making tea. They were working side by side, serving with one another. I, I loved, so when Stephanie and I were first uh, dating, then we were engaged, then we were married, then we got to serve together all the time. We had to do things together. Like, in fact, we, we, I say we very loosely, and you'll understand why in a second, we taught two-year-old junior church during our Sunday evening services at the church I started at. And, and Stephanie's responsibility and role was to keep the kids in order and teach the lesson. My role was to leave the room regularly to find out when church was going to be done so we could go home. We all have a role to play. <laughs> um, but then, then kids happened, and we had four kids, mostly because Steph can't keep her hands off of me, but that's okay. We can just, you know... Truth is truth. <laughs> I said that first service. She's like, people are looking at me weird now. <laughs> it's all good, babe. Just, just embrace it. It's all good. Um, and so that slows some things down. It gets a little tricky. But then when the kids got older, we, we started incorporating the kids into our ministry and into our service. And they started serving alongside us. And most particularly in the technology and, and, and visuals and sound and lighting and all that stuff that happened. And so there were Sunday services where the Taylor clan from like, from me all the way down to when one of the kids was like eight, we're all in the back like the Von Trapp family of technology. I mean, we were, we were doing it all together. But there is nothing more beautiful and wonderful than seeing a couple serve together. I love walking around this place on Sunday morning and seeing couples side by side teaching in our classes. I love seeing them work the coffee station together or the, the welcoming station together. I, I love seeing them hold doors with one another. There's nothing better than watching husband and wife work side by side together. What are you doing? What are you doing? And they used their home for the church to meet in. Maybe, maybe your ministry together would be hosting a community group. I don't know. Maybe you are the disciple-making couple. Maybe your job is to lead that community group. I, I don't know, but the question remains, as Paul identified in them strength and wonder, what are you doing? He mentions this other, this other person, greet my dear friend Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. How cool is that? The very first one to come to Christ in Asia. That, that, that Ephesus is, was the capital of Asia at the time. Then verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Here is Mary. She's, she's a toiler. She is a worker. And why did she do it? She worked very hard for you. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ Jesus before me. Andronicus and Junia have become a, a lightning rod for theological fights. You don't have to worry about theologians that fight. They don't land many punches. <laughs> uh, they talk a lot, but there's not a lot of fists being thrown. We, we don't know who these people are. Adronicus and Junia could be brothers. 
We're not really sure Junia could be a male, the male form of the name, but Junia could also be the female form of the name, and if it's that, then they're probably husband and wife. Regardless, they were willing to go to jail with Paul for the gospel. They were willing to suffer with Paul as the gospel continued to spread throughout the area. And then he makes this, and it's not a throwaway comment, it's very important, these also were in Christ before me. So, brothers and sisters who have a little more mileage on them in the gospel, brothers and sisters who came to Christ before many of us, we value you. We would ask for you to consider how you are using your wisdom in the life of this church. Your wisdom is invaluable. We, we need it. That's something to be honored. And so we seek to do that and want to continue to do that. Romans 16, verse 8. Greet Implitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachus. Implitus, Urbanus, Stachus. Uh, get this, Paul says, these are my dear friends. My dear friends. These, these are people that Paul felt personally connected with. That's not nothing. I, I think what's happened in our radically individualistic culture, both of America and of the modern church, is we've either fallen for the lie or we are telling ourselves the lie that we should be able to make it just by myself, with myself and God, just me and God. That's spiritual maturity right there, just me and God. And I would say, no, it's not. That's not spiritual maturity. When you consider the one weakness of Adam in the garden, it was not good that he be alone. That was not stated after sin. That was stated within the perfect creation. That the ache for friends is the one ache that isn't the result of sin. God's created us in such a way that, that, that Adam couldn't even enjoy paradise without somebody. So let me encourage you this morning. If you are lonely, you are not dysfunctional. You're healthy. I, lo I love what Tim Keller said. If you are lonely, it's because you're not a tree. <laughs> to need deep spiritual friendships isn't a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's a sign of actual immaturity. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of health. So let me ask you, who are your friends? Who are your friends? How do you make friends? Um, as a church leader, and, and I would say that most elders and staff hear this at one point or another, um, one of the regular complaints we will hear from people who attend church is they feel, people feel disconnected. But when you dig a little deeper, what you find in their disconnection is they're not attending church, they're not in a small group, and they're not serving. Oh, but you're disconnected, you say. I don't understand why. How, how can you possibly feel connected when what you are doing is ignoring one of God's clearest commands to not forsake the opportunity to gather with other believers? So, so let me tell you this. So what you need to do if you are feeling that, that loneliness or feeling like you're disconnected is show up. Get into a community group. Serve. Make yourself available. 
Okay, so I show up, and I'm going to tell you, I'm an introvert. No, this is not me actually talking. I know that surprises you, but okay. <laughs> I just had to clarify. I'm an introvert, and I'm not sure. You show up. You show up. I know it's awkward. You just show up. And then the awkward people like me who are outgoing, we need to keep our eyes open. We need to be aware. We need to be engaging. We need to get out of our little uh, circles that we love to run in, that are just comfortable, that we just kind of gravitate towards. No, you need to have your eyes open for those who are looking to build relationships within the local assembly of believers. And I want to encourage you, that it is, is what we are supposed to be doing. All right, 1610, going to keep going. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. I can't say a lot there other than, man, I hope that's my tombstone. Right? Approved in Christ. The idea is to be tested and judged and found to be genuine in Christ. Man, that would be a great tombstone. And he continues, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. That's my favorite name in the list. Aristobulus. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. So you've got the, 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 the household of Aristobulus. Who is Aristobulus? As you trace history, as you trace church history, these two things merge and converge in this one spot where you find that Aristobulus is the grandson of Herod the Great. Ever heard of him? Now, the grandson of Herod the Great is a believer? Yeah, that's not who Paul greets. He greets the household of Aristobulus. And when you use the term household, you're not talking about family. What you're talking about are the servants, the slaves who work within that elite home. The same thing goes for the household of Narcissus. Then you've got that, that guy Herodian. Herodian is a, is, is a Jewish house slave of Herod. I mean, do you see where all the gospel goes how many people are impacted in this local body? Look at verse 12. Greet Tryphona and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Tryphona and Tryphosa. That's pretty cool names. They're probably twins. The way the naming worked, when you started with the same beginning and then ended it differently, it's usually twins. They're, it's a female name, so they're probably twin girls. And Tryphona, Tryphosa, their names mean dainty and delicate. Persis means crazy woman. I'm just kidding. I made that up. Sorry. This seemed to contrast with dainty and delicate. Persis is, is just another woman's name. And what was assigned to the Tryphona, Tryphosis, and Persis is this. They worked very hard in the Lord. Bam! What else do you want to be said about you? Here are three little gals who just get a lot done. They work hard in the Lord. And I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But as soon as I started studying this, I'm like, I know exactly who fits this right here. These three little gals, and I think instantly of our office volunteers. They show up, and they get it done. And they work harder than most of us. They get it done. Greet Rufus, he says in verse 13, which is another fantastic name. Greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Lots to unpack there, very little time. Rufus. There's another Rufus that's mentioned in Scripture. Uh, church history, um, right out of the gate, seems to identify these Rufuses as the same one. Or Rufi, I'm not sure what the plural of Rufus might be. This Rufus, his daddy's name is Simon. Yeah, that didn't do anything for you. Let me help. Let's try this. Simon was from this place, the Cyrenes. Simon the Cyrene. Let me, let me finish this for you. 
Mark chapter 15, we're told the soldiers beat Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head, they put a purple robe on him, they gave him his cross, they marched him through the street, and when he kept stumbling, the soldiers reached into the crowd and pulled a man out of the crowd to carry the cross of Christ. His name was Simon the Cyrene, and his children were Alexander and Rufus. I think it's fascinating that the conversation from Paul's mouth in this letter is greet Rufus who is chosen in the Lord. This is, this is purely opinion, so please understand this. This one's just on me. It's like, why, why would all of a sudden he drop this incredibly deep, theologically rich term, chosen in the Lord, elect, the sovereignty of God? Why would that? Well, I believe that perhaps the likelihood is that Rufus and Paul had many conversations where Rufus kept looking at Paul saying, but Paul, why? Well, why would daddy take us to Jerusalem that day? Why would we be standing in the crowd that day where dad had to carry the cross? Why? And Paul's response is, you know, God's sovereignty is amazing, isn't it? But he doesn't just greet Rufus. He greet Rufus. Also, his mother. She's like a mom to me, too. This is Paul's other mother. And, and I don't know, I don't know, Rufus's mom somehow acted like Paul's mom. Maybe a couple times it talks about how you know, Paul's not feeling well, so maybe she was taking care of him with the soup. Maybe at the end of Timothy where Paul's like, and would you please bring my coat? Because Rufus's mom told me I'm supposed to wear a jacket. Uh, maybe, maybe she's the one that showed up after the third shipwreck. It's like, Paul, no more ships, ride a donkey. Um, we don't know. We just know that somehow she's involved in his life in such a way that as he thinks about her, he thinks, that's like my mom. Hey, ladies, particularly our older women, we need you in our lives. There are people within our church family who don't have a good relationship with their mom, and they desperately need that mother figure. There are those of us in our church who do have a good relationship with their mom, and they, they still need that mom to be the encourager, to be the, the smiler, to be the, the side hugger, to be the, the one who casts the, the knowing glances, the little wink, or I'm grab them by the ear and just pull them over. I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, we need that. Paul had. Verse 14, greet asyncretus, phlegm, <laughs> phlegon, phlegm, we'll go phlegm, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologos and Julia, Nerus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. These are two different groups, verses 14 and 15. It almost seems like they're saying, okay, now greet these, these community groups, okay? Let them know I'm saying hello. And then verse 16, the single man's favorite verse in all of Scripture, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, just for the record, we're not practicing that this morning. <laughs> the idea here is principles, not methods. Okay, the idea is, is we're supposed to be warm and affectionate towards one each other. And we do that in different ways today. Fist bump, handshake, hug. We do the Trinitarian hug where you hug and tap him on the back three times. You do all these different things. The reality is what he's saying is for our culture today, put your phone down. Pick up your head. Make eye contact. Have a real conversation. That is all. Now, you look at verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. They are rich with both doctrine, theology. They are rich with application and commands. And I am skipping them to get to verse 21. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, 
my fellow countrymen also greet you. So here it shifts, and now Paul's saying these people with me are now sending greetings to you, church at Rome. And what I want you to know is Timothy, you know, first and second Timothy. Timothy is with Paul as he's writing Romans. He says, Timothy says hi. And this guy named Lucius, who, who we believe to be Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the, the book of Acts, he's with Paul while he's penning out Romans. Luke says hello, and then these other fellows, they, they say hello as well. And then it completely changes. Look at verse 20. So, so, so let me read 21 and then 22, 23, right? Timothy, my coworker, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow countrymen, they greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. What just happened? What just, I was a, this fellow named Tertius is like, hi, I say hi. What's going on? So, so, so here, let, let me explain this first. For the writing of letters in this time period, Paul would have been the one who, who would be talking, and then Tertius, we find out his name is, would be the scribe. And the scribe would have his quill, he'd have a little candlelight, and then he'd be writing like crazy, trying to keep up with Paul through this monstrosity of a theological treatise, right? He's just going and going and going and going, right? And, and, and then that, that's, that was his job. But we learned something really significant about this guy named Tertius, just by his name. See, Tertius was, or at the very least, was born as a lowly slave, one of the lowest slaves you can find in the culture at the time. Well, how do you know that? When you're born into slavery, you weren't given the dignity of personhood. You weren't even given a real name. So you just give him a number. And so here is the fellow who's known as third. Third slave in the house. So get this. Paul has gone through all 15 chapters of Romans and has just unpacked the beauty of the gospel through and through. He's gone through and he's greeted all of these beautiful people in the, the church at Rome. And, and then he says, okay, so Timothy and, and Lucius and Sosipatra, we, we, we all say hello. And then stops. And you can almost hear the smile in Paul's face. He's like, Tertius, my brother. They're your family, too. Go ahead and say hi. And he does. It's like, okay. Uh, hi, Tertius. The guy's writing this. I greet you in the Lord. Uh, and, and then he starts naming his small group. Gaius, whose house we meet at, he says hello. Erastus, who is a city official, he says hello. And then there's other guy, Cordus. He says hi, too. So, so what's happening here is Tertius is like, okay, um, hi, uh, it's me, uh, greetings. And then we all hang out at Gaius' house, which means Gaius probably had some money, so they were able to hang out there. He's like, Gaius, Gaius, Gaius says hi, too. Gaius says hi, too. I mean, this is, this is a teenager, if you ever saw him, but it's Gaius says hi, too. And then Erastus, he's a political figure in the town. He's in our small group. Erastus says hello. And then you get this one other guy over here, like, hey, say hi for me, too. And he's like, Cordus too. It's quite the small group. You got third, just the lowest of slow slaves. Gaius, a man of means. Erastus, a city official. And fourth, Cordus. 
inscripturated for all time for you and I to see. The who's who of the church is vastly different than the who's who of the world. Every single person in here that we have mentioned, they're believers, they're connected to a church, they're serving in some way. They're not all serving the same way, but they're serving in some way. And within this body of believers at Rome, there is a diversity that is hard to top. You've got public people, private people, older people, younger people, slave, free, rich, poor, married, single, male, female, Romans, Gentiles, Greeks, Jews. I mean, the, the church is made up of this, this incredibly ordinary but diverse group of people who know him, who are growing, who are serving, and who are loving one another. And let me tell you this, man. This church at Rome is thriving. This church at Rome is healthy. This church at Rome is going to show up in all the popular magazines like, this church is a healthy church. Why? It's not because of the pastor. It's not because of the worship team. It's not because of the children's ministry. It's not because of the location. It's not because of the version of the Bible they use. It's not because they serve coffee in the lobby. It's not because of what they wear when they preach or what they don't wear when they preach. It's not because of any of those things. It's because... In this church exists a group of people who are committed workers to the kingdom of God. In this church are people who are so much like you in certain ways, in other ways, not so much, but every single one of them is a follower of Jesus Christ. Each one of them is a sinner who is saved by grace. Only the church manages a unity among such diversity. I want to close with one thing. As you consider the greetings that Paul gave to you in his letter, as you sit with his people, listening to those greetings, and then hearing, oh, greet Mary, she's a hard worker. You know the sentence that comes afterwards. I want you to consider this. What, what, if Paul was to mention your name in his letter to the church at Uniontown, what would your sentence be? What would your sentence be? See, what we find in the church of Rome can also be found at Uniontown in many ways. And it's the power and the grace of God, the beauty of the gospel on display for a watching world who can't figure out how in the world it works. as long as we are faithful to the calling to be committed to the kingdom of God, then the beauty and the wonder of the gospel will be plain for everybody to see. May it be revealed more and more to God's glory as we continue on as a church. Father, thank you for your divinely appointed rabbit trails, your incredibly gracious and kind direction as we think we know which way we're going and then there's there's tweaks and changes to it. Thank you that your word is so powerful and poignant, that your word is so clear, that your word is so descriptive. Lord, I thank you that, that even in a chapter with just a bunch of names, there is so much for us to learn. I pray that as a local assembly, a local church, that, Father, we would be more faithful and more committed to doing what you have called us to do. May your grace and peace be famous. May your name be famous. May we make much of Jesus and little of ourselves. Help us to get out of the way, Lord. I pray that we would remain humble without having to be humbled. I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom to know how to meet the unique challenges that come as we try to walk through life as a follower of Christ. May we, may we be faithful. May we be faithful. May we be 
May we be those people who have been tried and found to be genuine in their walk with Christ. We know that the only reason we have anything to celebrate is because of what Christ has already done for us. So it's in his matchless name I pray. Amen.